Blog Talk Radio. Taping down for BackSportsPage.com. My name is Randy Zelia coming to you live from the studio apartment out here in New Jersey. And we have the man, the myth, the legend, the man behind the pen, the man behind the keyboard, the man in the press box, the man who's flying the Millennium Falcon. That man right there, his name is Bill Ingram. Bill, how are you today, my friend? Well, she'll make 0.5 past light speed. She may not look like much, but she's got it where it counts. <laughs> Doing great. How are you? <laughs> I figured I uh, I try. I can do the whole movie if you want. I can. I can do the whole movie. I can do the voices. Oh yeah, I have to do them fast. Uh, did you hear that? They shut down the main reactor. We'll be destroyed for sure. Okay. That's actually my line. Right? You're R two D two. Uh, so I wanted to let you know, uh, this week you know, we're doing the Los Angeles Lakers, which always seems to be a very hot topic in the NBA. The Lakers and the Knicks always seem to be the hottest topic in the NBA, whether good, bad, or indifferent. But I wanted to let you know that I got some feedback from people from the Brooklyn Nets about the episode we did last week on the Nets and the Spurs. And, uh, awesome. What did they think? The, they, they actually loved it. They loved the fact that we're going back and looking at it. And the one thing that we left off from that episode, which I thought we hit, a, hit on it, and I went back and listened to it, and we did miss it, was what ended up happening with Byron Scott after the fact. I think we did oh, address that okay. he, he, Byron Scott was let go by the Nets uh, uh, right in the, not midway point of the season, about probably about 25, 30 games in. The Nets were 500, or maybe a game under 500. Yeah. And then Byron Scott was let go. Uh, the the secret sauce that was the Nets for those first two years was Michael Corn and Eddie Jordan, who ended up going to Washington right after their appearance in the NBA Finals against the Spurs. Right. Byron Scott. Byron Scott was let go, which fed into the Jason Kidd and Byron Scott feuding thing, which promoted Lawrence <laughs> Frank as yep. head coach. And Lawrence Frank had the best start ever as a rookie head coach of a 15-game winning streak. So they reminded me about that. And then they said, for someone who was as close to the Nets as you were at the time, should have remembered that. And I had egg on my face to that point. Because so, sometimes yeah, the coaching change has that 
that kind of drastic impact on a team, you know. The funny well, thing about that is Lawrence Frank was the guy that Jason Kidd tapped as his assistant when he took his first head coaching job. And the two did not get along at all. In fact, uh, they wound up firing Lawrence Frank. And what I heard about it was it's because Lawrence Frank thought he was the head coach again, even though Jason Kidd had the title and kept just sort of trying to overshadow Kidd and like it was his team. And uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting how a dynamic starts one way. And then when you come a decade and a half later or whatever, the, the, the uh the relationship is not what it was. And at that point they're like, didn't we get along at one point? And <laughs> didn't we, didn't yeah. we like each other at that point? <laughs> well, it's like, that's when I was got... telling you to go out there and play and you did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well piggybacking off of that point of the O three finals, heading into the two thousand three, two thousand four season, a lot of moves that were being made, but one sort of negative move that move that sort of happened not only for the Los Angeles Lakers but for the league itself uh, during the 2003 offseason, superstar Kobe Bryant had been accused of sexual assault in Colorado. The media attention surrounding the case would prove to be an ongoing distraction for the upcoming season. This was a big deal going into that offseason because this happened fairly quickly. Uh, during the offseason, and it was no more than the NBA Finals. This happened right around draft time, right in the beginning of July. What do you remember about the Kobe Bryant legal situation during that offseason? Well, of course, because he's Kobe. and At that time, Kobe was, he was, you know, popular, but not what he became, you know, five, six years after that when he was the, the superstar face of the league. Um, but I remember just thinking – what a terrible um, learning experience for a young player to, you know, you think you're having a consensual situation and then that person turns on you and is, I mean, she was, it was all about the money. It was all about getting paid. And, and I got to tell you, having worked around the game for as long as I did, uh, it's, it is very hard for young players, I think, to adjust to the fact that everywhere you go, there are women lined up. They know where the team hotel is and they know what time the bus is getting there and they're lined up. Uh, Dwight Howard struggled with this <laughs> tremendously. How much of his check does he actually get to take home? Not a whole lot. Uh, but, you know, somebody, the, a veteran on a team, somebody has to pull the young players aside and be like, hey, look, this is how it's going to be and you got to watch yourself. Because what these predators want to do is they want to get pregnant and they want to get that check right from the superstar that's making millions of dollars They're, they have huge targets on their back and this is what uh, that's the lesson that kobe learned obviously the extreme hard way because you're a laker you're kobe bryant it's all judiciated in the press and then it's all the press wants to talk about when they see you for months afterwards because that's what the media does they, they beat the dead horse and uh, so, I, you know, I thought he handled it well. And obviously that didn't happen again. So, so he learned his lesson. And I think ultimately that, that's what you hope is that when somebody makes a, a, a terrible mistake like that, that they learn from it and don't repeat it. And just a little, not, not that I want to spend a lot of time on this, but uh, he, 
He had in connection an investigation of a sexual assault case, complaint filed by a 19-year-old hotel employee. Bryant had checked into the lodge and spa in Caledonia at a hotel in Edwards, Colorado, on June 30th in advance of having surgery near there on July 2nd under Richard Stedman. The woman accused Brian of raping her in a hotel room on July 1st, the night before the surgery. Brian admitted in a sexual encounter with his accuser but denied the assault, the assault allegation. The case was dropped after Brian's accuser refused to testify in the case. A separate civil suit was later filed against Brian by the, by the woman. They settled out of court and included Brian's publicly apologizing to his accuser, though admitting no guilt on his part. So I'm sorry for doing something wrong, even though I didn't do something wrong. That's the that's the last line of that. That's what happened with Kobe <laughs> there. And but that that drags on through the year where he was missing preseason games, the first part of the regular season. So that's sort of a narrative to keep while we're telling this story uh, today of the O three O four Lakers. Um, with, yeah, they had a they had being, a lot of distraction going on, especially at the beginning. And. This uh, this season coming off the 2002-2003 Lakers, which was knocked out in the second round by the San Antonio Spurs, who the Spurs on, on, went on to compete and win the NBA championship against the Nets, as we discussed that last week. Yep. Uh, and the, the Lakers wanted to make some moves. They decided that they were going to try to upgrade at certain positions and move forward in some different positions. And it was a very... They went the super team route. I, I, we talk about super teams, and we seem to always seem to forget that this was maybe the, the second super team that ever they tried to form. The first one being that Houston Rocket team back in '98, '99 yeah, with Scotty Pippen, yeah, Barkley, Drexler, and Elijah Wan. Um, mm-hmm. So this team, the Apollo Three, of that never got off the ground. Yeah, well, this was this was a case of the you know Carl Malone. John Stockton opted to retire, and Carl Malone opted to chase a ring, because of course, though that Jazz team was very very good and got to the finals and you know kept couldn't couldn't get past the Bulls, which was not uncommon. Uh, he still had game in him, and wanted to go compete for a championship. And and to his credit, he he did. I mean, he he had game. He played well. And uh, they did get all the way to the finals, including uh, beating their nemesis, San Antonio, the defending champs. Yes. And what was very interesting, I was just about to go over the roster real quick. You said it before I did, that John Stockton opted to uh, retire. And there's nothing wrong with that. He he had been there and worked, worked his tail off, and Carl decided that he wanted to have one opportunity to ring. Carl signed with the Lakers. Also on that team, they had some rookie kid by the name of Luke Walton. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's he's, he's found a way to keep him. Keep Clearly, his name, uh, he's the greatest head coach in the history of the NBA now. Luke Walton, certainly the most gifted. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's his dad. He is he is the best coach in our stratosphere. Uh, <laughs> you had you had Jamal Sampson, six foot eleven, who didn't see the court. So I can't even ask you if you have what was your favorite Jamal Sampson moment. Byron Russell, <laughs> he, it's a package package deal with Carl Malone everywhere he's, where he goes. You know, he's yep. watched the push off. Instant offense, Kareem Rush on the bench there as well. Uh, another free agent pickup, which obviously we didn't have a chance to talk about yet, Gary Payton. Contra, you know, he was traded from yep. Seattle to Milwaukee during the 2002-2003 season. 
he, he couldn't come to a contract extension agreement with Seattle. They decided to part ways. He didn't want to resign with Milwaukee. Milwaukee took the bait in unloading Ray Allen's contract, sending him to Seattle, which led to Gary Payton being a free agent after the year. And we talked about ring chasing. Well, Gary Payton was talked into a uh, bag of false goods. Also on the team, some guy may have won a championship or two by the name of Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, oh, yeah, Kobe that Bryant's guy. Right-hand man. <laughs> Kobe Boris Bryant's Grant. right-hand man, Slava, you know. Slava, Slava Medvedenko was on this roster. Yeah. Horace Grant was injured throughout the year, but he was on this roster. Devin George, who was the lone non-superstar starter on this roster. Rick Fox was mm-hmm. on the squad. Derek Fisher, Brian Cook, Kobe Bryant, as we just discussed before, but Kobe Bryant was not wearing number 24, so he was not one better than Jordan. He was still number eight. So at that yeah. point in time, that, <laughs> yeah. that, that, was, the, that was the roster uh, up until that point. Now, what was very interesting was how would this work out with this type of team? The Lakers finished second in the conference, 56-26, and 26, uh, two games behind the Minnesota Timberwolves. That's right. Don't adjust your headsets. The Minnesota Timberwolves were the number one seed in the Western <laughs> Conference. During the 03-04 season, the San Antonio Spurs. That was the year Latrell Sprewell couldn't feed his kids on $40 million or whatever it was. <laughs> I almost forgot about that. Thank God you said that. Uh, the Sacramento Kings <laughs> were the fourth seed. The Dallas Mavericks were the five seed. The Memphis Grizzlies, you guys don't adjust your headsets again. The Memphis Grizzlies were the sixth seed. The Houston Rockets, seventh seed. And the Denver Nuggets, eighth seed. It seems like every time we talk about playoff basketball, Denver ends up in the eighth spot. You t- this yeah. <laughs> this uh, this was the Carmelo Anthony led Denver Nuggets, very interesting type of squad. Uh, Portland ended up 41-41, tenth. Utah nine. This was the first year without Stockton Malone in Utah. Utah was led by Carlos Arroyo and missed the playoffs by one game. And I think they were like the sentimental favorites to try to make that eighth spot because uh, it was just, just one of those fan favorite teams. And then the follow, you know, they had AK-47, they had Carlos Arreo. They just had a bunch of greedy players, and just they missed it by a game. Oh, that Carmelo Anthony on how that league was favoring him. Um, fun, <laughs> fun, fun coaching situation there. It would be halfway through the following year with Denver that they would fire their head coach and bring in George Carl. So go figure that out. <laughs> Little side fun Denver nugget note. Yep, and George Carl was quite good. Took took that team about as far as anybody could take it. Uh, with, Conference finals. With, uh, yeah, with Carmelo and and of course Iverson came along. But uh, yeah, I think it's when I looked at this final series uh, when I was doing my side of the research, I, w- I was interested because when you look at who the Lakers had to beat, there's an interesting story because first was this upstart kid from China named Yao Ming. And that matchup was anticipate, anticipated to be really big, Yao versus Shaq. And later it would be, but Yao wasn't quite ready for that. <laughs> he was the uh, deer in headlights, basically, for that series. Um, but you also had a, a really explosive backcourt combination, Steve Francis and Catino Mobley. If Francis ever could have figured out how to be a point guard, um, it would have been interesting. He He just never – passing was sort of – something he had seen other people do, wasn't real big on doing it himself. Uh, but Catino Mobley was an outstanding uh, backcourt mate for him. That team had Jim Jackson, you know. Mo Taylor, one of the 
stalwart long-term uh, great contributors in the league that never gets talked about really. Uh, and Mark Jackson, who we know now is the coach. So um, it was an interesting uh, Houston team that they had to go through in the first round. And uh, then of course, when you have to deal with the, the uh, defending champs in the second round, and you use your your new depth and your size, and and you take advantage uh, of Carl Malone there uh, when you're trying to contend with Tim Duncan. And then uh, they finally had to go through Minnesota, and that and that was the team with that's really the best the Minnesota Timberwolves have ever been. That's the KG in his prime Timberwolves. Uh, and so the the Lakers did not have an easy path to the finals by any means. And really, no, by, to by their credit, means, yeah. None of those series were like competitive. They won them all four two. Like it's not, there were no game sevens. There were no, uh, there wasn't much drama. They just simply went out there and overpowered uh, three really promising teams. Of course, the Spurs, a great team, and the Timberwolves, as you mentioned, best record in the league. And uh, this group came together around their around their immense talent and depth of of stars and former stars to make it to the finals. The uh, the Eastern Conference was not nearly as tough that year. Uh, it's never when is the Eastern Conference? It was tough when uh, Larry Bird was playing and Dr. J. <laughs> well, but if you look about, just going to go back to one thing with Carl Malone. Malone hurt himself on the 21st, ended up missing 39 games of the year. The Lakers had an 18 and 3 start. Eventually came back and he worked himself back into the lineup. Um, little fun facts I didn't realize until I was doing some research on this. Malone became a free agent at the end of this season. They didn't want to come back because of Kobe Bryant. At that point, Kobe Bryant yeah. rubbed everybody the wrong way. And he was very yeah. close from signing out with, signing with the Knicks in the 0405 season. And then in 2005, uh, there was a rumor that Malone was going to sign with the Spurs. Um, right. But Popovich, Popovich even confirmed that they were interested in it, but Malone didn't want to just jump in midseason and then still feel like a ring chaser at that point. So he ended up retiring on February 13th, 2005 at the Delta Center. I didn't know about the Knicks thing. To me, that was very interesting. And I was around here around that point. I really had no idea about the Knicks situation. So that's, that's a, that's a very interesting little side. I think the thing to Carl Malone, uh, a player with no, no ego, uh, very someone everybody wanted to play with and very few wanted to play against. And the fact that, you know, that doesn't always work. Scottie Pippen, when, when he went to Houston, he started telling everybody he was the man now and it was his team and blah, blah, blah. And everybody's looking at him like, I'm sorry, what was your name again? Because uh, <laughs> you see that guy with the 34 on his jersey over there? You need to hold his beer, right? Only Akeem didn't drink beer. You need to hold his uh, Gatorade. <laughs> But Carl Malone was able to come in, granted missed basically half the season, but he came in and contributed where it was needed. He he gave him, you know, 13 points a game, gave him almost nine rebounds. He averaged four assists. You know, he, this is a guy that even at that late stage of his career just stepped in and said, hey, what do I need to do? You know, I'll, I'll clean up the glass. I'll, I'll hit a shot here and there. But he didn't come in feeling like he was entitled you know, had an understanding that it's Kobe and Shaq, and then I just need to, you know, fit with what I can do. That takes a lot. It takes a lot for a player who has been a superstar to do that, I think. 
Very interesting, too, when I, you were talking about the Rocket series. I remember that Houston won game three. And people felt that the Lakers were on the on the rocks for game four and ended up winning a close game in overtime, 92-88. What do you remember? Because you were obviously working down in Texas covering the Spurs and the Mavs around that point in time. Uh, I'm sorry, the Mavs and the Rockets around that point. What do you remember most right. about that and playoff the series? Yeah. With, with, what did you remember most about the late, that, that Laker-Rockets series? Well, I think part of it, I, I remember sitting courtside with Cynthia Cooper at one point. My my seat was next to hers when I covered Rockets games. And she was the point guard for the Houston Comets, four-time W. They won the first four WNBA championships. And it was really hard to watch Steve Francis try to be a point guard because he just didn't have court vision. <laughs> I mean, it just it just wasn't happening. And I remember one time I turned to her and I said, so Yao Ming is wide open under the basket. And and he he hadn't made it back to the other end, but the Rockets got a steal. Because Yao was very slow-footed, uh, you know, just so big. And uh, so he's, he's at like mid-court when the steal happens. So he just turns around and runs back, and he's under the basket. And Steve Francis has the ball. And rather, and, and Yao's all by himself. You know, Yao, I don't have to even get on tiptoes to dunk the ball, is standing by himself under the basket. And Francis dribbles through two guys who were trying to catch up to him and blows a layup or blows, you know, missed a, what should have been a dunk. And I turned to Cynthia Cooper and I said, hey, could we um, trade him for you? Because <laughs> Yao Ming would be averaging about <laughs> 40 points a game if we had a, a true point guard in this uh in this game. So that's the main thing that, that sticks with me about that particular Rockets lineup. Granted in the game, they won Stevie was Stevie franchise. He had 27 points, uh, seven assists, nine rebounds. You know, Yao had 18 points, 10 rebounds. Even uh, Kelvin Cato was decent. They were plus 10 with him on the floor and Cato was kind of a, a brick handed type player, but which I think helped encourage Francis to shoot more. But uh, the problem was you would get that from Steve one night, and then he he just was very inconsistent. So it was almost like when he had a great game like that, you sort of shuddered to think about what him trying to do it again. And that was really what I thought about Francis throughout his career. There were moments where he looked amazing, you know, like, wow, this guy is, is really something. And then there were and it- a lot of moments where you were like, what the hell? <laughs> well, well, this was Francis's last season with the with the Rockets. Was it pretty much after the series? They're like, listen, this Yao and Francis tandem is not going to work, and they ended up making the move around draft time, sending Stephen Franchise over to Orlando, and they brought Tracy McGrady in. Uh, what was the general consensus with that? With the, well, what did they tell you at least, or what did you feel at that point? Was it was the love affair over between the the Houston fan base and Stephen Franchise? Yeah, and it's just for that reason. When they drafted Stevie, Fran- they, you know, Stevie Franchise, and he looked the part a lot early in his time with Houston. But then when they got Yao, and everybody, when you looked at Yao Ming and you saw the, the incredible, he could shoot from anywhere. Uh, he was a great ball distributor, not quite up to the level of Elijah Wan, but he, he, was a, he had great court awareness. And I think the Rockets figured out 
that, and I know they did because Carol Dawson, the general manager of the team at the time, told me they figured out that Yao was not going to reach his potential with Steve Francis. And they knew that Tracy McGrady was a legit superstar uh, who did understand how to set somebody up. Uh, you know, Tracy, a very cerebral guy, very cerebral player. And during his time in Houston, I got to know him quite well. Anytime I was around the Rockets, I'd always go, not not always on the record, but just it was he'd really explain things in a way that you understood if the team was struggling. Well, here's why. And granted, he wore that uh, label of not being able to do it in the big game. You know, Ned, all those years he played, all those really good teams he was on, he couldn't win a championship until he was the 15th guy off the bench with the Spurs the, at the end. But but Tracy had, was was a player that the Rockets saw as that second superstar, like they had with Olajuwon and Drexler. It was a similar they, – they foresaw a similar dynamic. The difference was Drexler, with the game on the line, was going to – you were going to win. I mean, he was just incredible. Tracy never never got to that point. And, of course, I mean, obviously the other issue with that was Yao Ming never could never stay healthy. He was he battled foot and leg injuries, got and wound up with screws in his feet, and then he had a hard time running and wound up having to retire. So it never panned out, but it's not because it didn't look good on paper and, and not because it didn't make a whole lot of sense when they made the move. I mean, I think everybody was excited about the prospect of Tracy McGrady playing with Yao Ming. In the second round of the series, second round playoff series against the uh, San Antonio Spurs, sort of everything went to script, and then that damn Derek Fisher. <laughs> that damn Derek Fisher. That shot I tell you what. Jack of, like, Tim Duncan hits that beautiful jump shot a little bit above foul line, hits, hits the shot, goes up 70, uh, 73, goes up 73, 72, and then the amazing .1 inbound pass to Derek Fisher, bam, puts away the San Antonio Spurs, not only for game five, but for the series. They win 74-73 in San Antonio, and then they go back to to L.A. and San Antonio. I think that that loss in Game Five demoralized that team. And Game Six was 88 to 76, winning by 12, which led to the Western Conference Finals matchup: the Lakers playing the Minnesota Timberwolves. You being down in Texas, talk to me about this series. What was the crazy part about this Lakers-Spurs rivalry that? pretty much ended after this year because the Lakers went through a rebuild. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was it. I, I, there are, there are very few, a handful of performances that I remember in San Antonio at AT AT&T center, you know, being right there, media row, watching things transpire. And that Derek Fisher shot, I got to tell you now it wouldn't be legal because you have, there have to be at least two tenths of a, a second on the clock for a catch and shoot. So in the modern NBA, that shot doesn't count. But that shot, I remember Derek Fisher's shot. The other thing that I vividly remember from being in San Antonio during the playoffs, remember when uh, Goran Dragic was with Phoenix and the Suns played the Spurs, and he had, I forget how many points, 40 points or some crazy just amazing performance in San Antonio that's gotten him paid for years since then. Uh, but those are, you know, those, those great performances in the playoffs, you know, and of course, Derek Fisher was one of those guys like Robert Orr. He was around forever. He, he hit big shots. Uh, he was 
a, a player that really brought a lot of toughness and, and a winning mentality to a team, a transformative player. Uh, and man, <laughs> that shot, uh, that was something else, uh, but that, that was the series. That series was extremely competitive. Uh, and again, like you mentioned, the, the rivalry always makes things a little more, you know, it adds a little extra oomph to it. Um, but yeah, the Lakers then went through a rebuild, the Rockets, I mean, the, the Spurs continued to be dominant until Tim Duncan retired. Talk to me about the Minnesota Timberwolves at that point in time. You had Latrell Sprewell, Sam Cassell, Kevin Garnett, Michael Ola. I believe Michael Ola Candy was on that squad. Yep, he was. Yeah, that, he that didn't was necessarily play. Very... He was, his name was on the roster. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's the thing with Oluwa Candy, man. He would have a game where you were like, oh, man, this guy's incredible. And then that player wouldn't show up for a month or two. (laughs) Well, he was, again, one of the, we're going to do a show on the top 10 worst number one draft picks. Yes. I believe he's on that list. His name is laminated on that list. (laughs) (laughs) Him, Purvis Ellison. (laughs) Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hashim Tabit will always be my favorite because, of course, he wound up in Houston the night that Rick Adelman decided he was going to not come back as the Rockets coach was the night they traded Shane Battier to Memphis to get Hashim Tabit. Rick Adelman looked like somebody had just beaten his dog. I mean, just like he wanted to go uh, John Wick on this team, like on the front office. <laughs> like, what the hell? Yeah, you know, when you put was... it that way, it makes it sound a lot more scarier when you say he's going to go John Wick on somebody. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you had – and Wally Zerbiak. Remember, Wally Zerbiak was a great pro in the league for a long time. He was on that team. Of course, Sam I Am, Sam Cassell, somebody I, I grew up watching in Houston, uh, all the way candy. Oliver Miller, man, remember him? Just oh, God, huge, yeah. huge guy. Uh, never very effective, but – because of his size, he always he could get paid here and there. Uh, Fred Hoiberg, obviously a coach now. So that was a team that had a lot of different weapons. They could hurt you in a lot of different ways. They had size. Uh, Irvin Johnson, who also had, you know, Laker. Um, they had size. They had they could hit you down below. They could hit you from outside. They had the mid range game. I mean that that team. Hey, they had the best record in the league for a reason. It's just that. The Lakers, once they hit their stride, and it certainly helped uh, with Carl Malone to deal with uh, Kevin Garnett, once they hit their stride, um, they just, you know, the team playing best at the end is the one that wins, and that's how the Lakers overcame what was, I mean, just a, a very, very good Timberwolves team. Best Timberwolves team to ever take the court. Yeah, and I also think that that win against the Spurs with the Fisher shot, I think built a confidence in that team that never oh, yeah. really Swagger. got going through the year. <laughs> you know, it just never got yeah. they never got it going because Malone was in and out with injuries, and it just never felt like I felt like Minnesota had like deer in headlights <laughs> situation where you know they go they go to uh, they play in Minnesota the first game and they lose by nine. Never really got in the game. They win game two. They blow up. They blow out the Lakers. 
And then they fall the next two at the Staples Center, and they finally get a win back in game five to try to get back into the series. And there was just no way. You know, they lose by six in game six. But an inexperienced team going against guys, four guys who have been through the ringers, all four of those guys have been in the NBA Finals before, plus Phil Jackson, plus you had guys like Devin George and Rick Fox on those teams who've had experience too. It, it didn't have much of a chance. If they, if they would have played the Spurs, if, if the Wolves would have played the Spurs, obviously a totally different conversation we'd be having right now, but I would have said the Wolves would have had more Well, because the Wolves had the strengths. The, the Timberwolves had strengths where the Spurs had strengths. In a way, they were built to try to be, you know, to compete with the Spurs. And so that the matchup of Kevin Garnett and Tim Duncan would have been epic. Uh, you know, and then you would have had Latrell Sprewell going against Manu Ginobili and Sam Cassell, Tony Parker. Like, I think it had more favorable matchups, maybe. Although the Spurs uh, during that time were just, uh, they they had a way of, on on the odd numbered years they were just unstoppable. So I don't know, but uh, but you're right. I think, wow, Shaq. Everywhere you look, there's people that have won championships or been in the finals and. And Minnesota d- didn't have that at all. So, uh, I mean, Sam Cassell had won with the Rockets, of course, but their star players were not. Uh, it was like, oh, wow, look where we got. <laughs> yeah, it, it was crazy. Now, now, let's jump over to the NBA Finals against the Detroit Pistons. My Lord, was this a shocking, as they always say, shocking turn of events. Um, considered the stunning upset of most the NBA world, the Detroit Pistons managed to defeat the Lakers with that imposing defense, defensively clamping down on everybody but Brian and O'Neal. The Pistons managed to hold everyone else to a total of 16 points. Pistons trailed 41-40 at halftime, but a 10-4 surge capped off by Bill's three-pointer gave the Pistons a lead. O'Neal's foul trouble further the scoring gap with the Pistons leading by 13 early in the fourth. The Pistons led by Chauncey Bills, 22 points. Rasheed Wallace chipped in with 14 points, eight boards, 12 points for Richard Hamilton, who also chipped in with seven boards, five assists. Ben Wallace, the rebound machine, nine points and eight boards. And uh, our, our favorite, or my favorite Cyclops guy, Tayshaun Prince, 11 points. Yeah. Tayshaun was able to do everything. He was so lanky. And if you look at that Detroit, well, real quick, before we go further with Detroit, let's take a look on where, how they got here. They had in the second round of that year a rematch of the conference finals from the previous season against the New Jersey Nets, where a, a situation that I was around uh, a lot closer. The Detroit destroyed New Jersey in the two home games, in games one and two. It didn't look like they showed up in three and four in New Jersey. And it had that epic triple overtime game where Brian Scalabrini uh, made his NBA debut to the world, showing that he existed with 16 points off the bench because everybody else fouled out. And then game six, the Pistons Pistons, uh, clamped down on New Jersey and then blew them out in game seven, beat the Indiana Pacers in six games, which I believe was Reggie Miller's curtain call. Yeah. If I if I if I remember no yeah that was Reggie Miller year. Jermaine O'Neal yeah yeah that was the following that was the following season where they had the curtain call for Reggie Miller so 
that that Pistons team was a very good Pistons team. Again, we were just breaking down the scores, uh, how many points their starting five got. The Lakers, led by our our favorite Kobe Shaquille O'Neal, thirty four, thirty four points, eleven boards, they had six turnovers, twenty five points for Kobe Bryant for, out of ten and twenty seven shooting. Keep in mind about the the, the field goal percent, the field goal shooting for Kobe Bryant. We're going to talk about that in some of the later games. Uh, I didn't feel that Kobe in the first two games in Los Angeles. We'll get to game two in a second. I don't see, but I want to test Bill's memory here. I didn't like Kobe's <laughs> shot selection during this finals. Game. I thought he was, I thought he was very erratic. I think that's the best word to describe it. Not that you know, not that Carl Malone was much better in game one. He was two for nine. Uh, with only four points, Gary Payton might as well have just sat on the bench. He was one for four. Like we discussed, the Pistons shut them down. But throughout the series, Kobe's shot selection was awful. Well, I think you have to – there's two ways to look at that. Um, this Detroit Pistons team, together with the Olajuwon Rockets, the Ewing Knicks, when you talk about the great – defensive teams of all time. I mean, you look at the box scores from this series, it's like the Lakers didn't play the fourth quarter in four of the games. You know, it's 68 points in one game. And so what you have is, yeah, yeah, Detroit, one of the great defensive teams of all time, they're simply not letting Kobe get into a groove. You know, I mean, I think there was a time later in Kobe's career where he, he would have figured that out probably. Um, but at this stage, they're taking everybody else out of the game and saying, okay, we're just going to make Kobe and Shaq do it all, and we're going to make Kobe uncomfortable, because you couldn't do that to Shaq. The league did not allow you to guard Shaquille O'Neal. You were not allowed to, and he was allowed to back you down into the paint, knock you over, step on you, and dunk, and that was legal for Shaquille O'Neal. It wasn't legal for anybody else. So, you know, I think (laughs) – when you consider that the the Pistons were taking so much away from the Lakers, I'm sure Kobe felt that it was on him to, okay, we got to get some points on the board. And when you have that, that kind of pressure, again, Kobe didn't feel later in his career when it was his team and Shaq wasn't there. Kobe played very differently. He was more cerebral. He read the floor better um, than he did in this series. But I think you you definitely have to credit Detroit's defense in forcing him to take shots that he didn't like and probably shots he didn't want to take. But he had somebody had to take him. Game two went to overtime nine. nine oh, I'm sorry, I lost I lost the thread. Game two overtime ninety nine ninety one. Lakers hold the Pistons to two points in OT. This would be the last home game that Shaquille O'Neal would ever play in a Laker uniform. Uh, you really felt like the Lakers had to get one of the first two on the road in Detroit. You even feel like they would have a shot. The, the game three disaster, and that's the best way of describing it. The game three disaster where they only put 68 points on the board. It goes back to the shot selection that you and I were just talking about. You know, I – I remember watching this live, and I kept on saying to myself, there's nothing like watching Kobe Bryant shoot a three-pointer with two guys on him. And think that that's going to be that's the play that Phil Jackson drew up 
especially when he's shooting four for 13 from the field, only 11 points. Shaquille O'Neal, seven for 14 from the field with 14 points. Did you feel at that point where you felt this was a Kobe Bryant ego thing? Because you have the biggest, the biggest guy in the league in Shaquille O'Neal. You dump it in there until they try to stop it. If they're not going to stop it, right until the fourth quarter. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, and that's where, you know, that's where that, that rivalry, the internal rivalry that, that exists to this day, by the way, anytime you ask one about the other, you get uh, testy answers at both. Or Shaq will just say something really incredibly over-the-top rude about Kobe, <laughs> as he's wont to do. But I, I do think, I think you have to consider that as part of the deal here, that, well, whose team is it? Now, why that mattered, you know, that, that didn't matter with Clyde and Akeem. That didn't matter with the Lakers that had such, you know, incredible runs against the Celtics. It didn't matter with the Celtics. Some of the, and the Spurs, I mean, absolutely not. The star players didn't need to prove one was better than the other, you know. But it, but this dynamic, for whatever reason, this dynamic was always such that that was part of the game. They're not just trying to beat Detroit. Kobe's trying to prove he's the guy, and Shaq's trying to prove he's the guy. And when your team is winning a championship, if your team is not squarely focused and on the same page with the same goal, it's awfully hard to win a championship. No, you're 100%, you're 100% right. And Kobe Bryant, the maturity that he showed in later years winning championships with Powell Gasol, being able to you know, beat the Celtics and the Orlando Magic. Obviously, if that Kobe Bryant was around at this point in time, just imagine they probably wouldn't have broken up this team and Shaq would have transitioned to making this Kobe's team. But it was just, at this point in time, it was still Shaquille O'Neal's team, hence why he was able to go to Miami and use a couple of those good years he had left to still be effective in this league to help teams get to the playoffs and have chances to be successful. Yeah, and he didn't have that issue with with Dwayne Wade. Um, There was not a dynamic of whose team is it and who's going to get this shot or that shot. They just played extremely well together. Uh, And Dwayne Wade was the best player on that team. However, Shaq was finals MVP when the Heat won with that duo. And so I think the difference, that's the difference, is, I mean, Kobe Kobe and Dwayne Wade were – there was they're in a class by themselves at that time in the NBA. There was not a better shooting guard. I, I would put them in that order, Kobe and then Wade, but it wasn't by much. But the difference was Shaq got to Miami and it didn't turn into Wade versus Shaq. Oh, it's Dwayne's team. It's Shaq's team. That just, that element wasn't there. And that, that is probably the difference, uh, you know, that gave them the edge when he was in Miami. We'll, we'll, do, we'll go more into this when we do our Shaq show, but I, I will ask you one question about Shaq when he ended up in Phoenix. With a guy like Steve Nash, the run-and-gun type of style, was Shaquille O'Neal the right fit for a point guard like that? No, because Shaq, at that, he, what, he, that wasn't the game that he played, even in his prime. You know, and I think he probably had a little trouble keeping up with the D'Antoni offense, but that's not what they needed. Shaq, to, to run a an offense with Shaq, you need to bring the ball up, get into your half-court set, dump it down to him, and then let him go to work, whether that means stomping on somebody and dunking or 
drawing the defense, dishing out for a three-point shooter. And that that was not <laughs> – even though you would think Shaq and, and Nash, Nash one of the great playmakers of all time, but, but yeah, it's kind of like teaching an old dog new tricks. He wasn't the first one down the floor anymore. Um, and, you know, at that time he was – I remember watching him go through pregame warm-ups on a couple different occasions that year. And it just like – he just – it was like all he could do to get warmed up enough or stretched out enough to go out and play. And that that really – I guess you could say – I would say he anchored the Suns' run-and-gun game, meaning he's at half court while they're trying to run their <laughs> – you know, trying to run their offense. So let's let's overview this because we're, we're running a little short on time. But let's overview this game three and four, and then we'll talk about the aftermath of what happened here with both teams. Games three and four in Detroit. Obviously, we had the big blowout where the Lakers only scored sixty something points, and then game four, Malone gets hurt again. Kobe's poor shot selection. Shaq's not getting the ball. The infighting. Phil Jackson not even discussing things with the team. And then, of course, this was the famous game where the Lakers are getting ready to go on the court and Kobe Bryant's cell phone rings and it's Brian Shaw. And he takes the phone call during Phil Jackson's speech. Is that like the total sign of disrespect? Because Kobe and Phil, you know, a divorce between those two was, was well in the way after reading Phil's book. Yeah, no, completely. I, again, Kobe went through a transformation. And I watched him do it. I I interviewed him some in the early years, but I got to know him better in the later years to the point that I was able to get one-on-one video with him when they came through somewhere where I was going to be. When you first tried to interview Kobe, you had to go through 17 firewalls. Like, well, it wasn't just the Lakers. He has his own personal blah, 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 blah. Well, once I got to know him later in his career when he had matured greatly, um, he basically, I didn't have to go through all those hoops anymore. I just called his personal assistant and said, hey, I'm going to be at shoot-around on Thursday. And he'd, she'd say, oh, yeah, Kobe, yeah, no problem, and we'd do it. Um, and I got to know him at, at that time. I didn't know the the egotistical, you know, <laughs> my team versus your team, Kobe, that he was early in his career. But um, But the second half of his career, Kobe, as you said, he wouldn't have, had that problem with shot selection, he would have did more like what Dwayne Wade did with Shaq. Um, But at the same time, you see players go through that. I mean, Michael Jordan was horrible to play with first half of his career until he figured figured out, you know, adjusted to the NBA game and and how to be a good teammate. He had to learn that. Akeem had to learn that. You know, Akeem would go out and dominate, and they'd lose, you know, Great, you had a great stat line. I mean, Michael Jordan, how many times did he score 50? They always lost, the Bulls. The great players don't walk onto the court. LeBron was certainly not a great teammate when he came into the league. His ego was so big, you couldn't even walk into the locker room if he was in there. Uh, And he had to figure that out. Hakeem helped him figure it out, ironically. LeBron went to see Hakeem, and Hakeem told him, you don't respect the game, and until you respect the game, actually said, you don't respect the game. You don't respect the game, you don't win the championship. The great players <laughs> had to go through this. We forget early, these great players weren't winning championships early. The only 
glaring exception that I can think of is Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan came in with zero ego, completely non, I mean, dominant on the court, but in timeouts and off the court, Greg Popovich would rip him a new a-hole for missing a defensive assignment, and Duncan would be like, I sure did, you're right. (laughs) You know, where if he did that to Kobe, like Kobe would have probably been in his face or something, you know, like it's, it's very unusual to see a player come into the league with that sense of humility and that sense of what it means to have a winning culture around you. Most of them had to figure it out. And Kobe absolutely had to figure it out. Let's go take a look here at the Los Angeles Lakers, the aftermath of what happened here. Phil Jackson retired, was out pretty much for a full year. And then Kissin made up with Kobe. They sat him down at Jeannie Buss, Kobe Bryant, and Phil Jackson all sat down and worked out their differences and eventually returned to the league after one season away. Rudy Tonjanovic took the realms of the Lakers and was only there for, I believe, a half a season, and then health problems took him away. The management had a battle, had to find a way to balance out the Shaq versus Kobe issue, and Shaq ended up getting traded to the Miami Heat, where the following season would go to the, West, to the Eastern Conference Finals and fall to the Pistons, and the, the Pistons had that epic series with the San Antonio Spurs when guess who hits a shot? We have to get our weekly Robert Ory mention in because Robert Ory wins <laughs> the Spurs another championship. Yep. So Shaq ends up, Shaq ends up winning a championship during the 2006 season with Dwayne Wade, uh, and we happen to have one of his former Lakers teammates with him, Gary Payton. We haven't talked about much with Gary Payton on the show, and especially in this episode, but Gary seemed to be the forgetting man out of, out of the big four here. Came in, everyone was worried about his attitude and him being the one who had the hardest time adjusting to the system. Lots of key points where he was not on the floor with Der- and Derek Fisher was there. How do you look at Co- uh, Gary Payton's season with the Los Angeles Lakers? Well, I think, you know, the, and I, I vividly remember thinking, oh, man, Gary Payton, that, he's going to be the one that causes that team to self-destruct. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> – Mr. Trash Talk, Mr. Ego, uh, he's going to be the one that comes in and just destroys the chemistry and all that. And I don't know if you, I don't know if you credit Phil Jackson. The only thing I ever really gave Phil Jackson credit for was he had the ability to get help people get along for the most part. Uh, he was not an X's and O's coach. He didn't win games from the bench. Uh, he knew when to put Jordan back in the game. And, okay, game over. But he did have a way of helping people get along, uh, which says something that it didn't work with Shaq and Kobe. The Zen master struggled with that. But I think Gary Payton coming in and being the just teammate, much like Carl Malone did, I would, I believe that had to have something to do with uh, the way that Phil Jackson handled him. My biggest issue with Gary Payton was, at the end of his career here, when he got moved to Milwaukee, I felt at the end he was just chasing the ring. Finished up with Miami, and, you know, obviously that team did not have the success that they wanted to have the year after they won a championship. They had the issues with Stan Van Gundy. Van Gundy leaves. Mm-hmm. Riley comes back in. And then Riley steps down and Spolstra takes over and becomes the longest reign head, co- head coach in the Eastern Conference right now. 
uh, and that's for, you know good for Eric Spolstra. Uh, so now moving on, Carl Malone, like we were discussing earlier, he did not play game five of this series. He was devastated that he wanted to. His health was starting to give out. A guy who was an Iron Man in this league for so long started failing. Yeah. And when I started seeing that story about him almost signing with the Knicks and almost going to the Spurs, I'm sort of glad he didn't because I would have hated to see the, the same legacy that some of those other players had where they were sort of just holding on too long and just chasing rings. And I'm so glad that he didn't do it. I'm glad that he was able to step away. He went, for the, he went all in on the Lakers. It didn't work out the way he really would have liked to see it happen. I don't know. I'm sort of glad, Bill, it just didn't work out from alone in Los Angeles and he didn't keep it going. I think for him, he's always going to be looked at as a member of the Utah Jazz. His time with the Los Angeles Lakers is a forgettable one. Maybe I'm wrong for thinking that way because Carl's a good guy. Uh, very straightforward. No, uh, he doesn't BS anybody. He doesn't to put on an axe for anybody. What you see is what you get from him. I, you would have liked to see him win a championship with Utah, but if I feel I feel that he would have been tarnishing himself if he would have won a championship in LA. Well, it's always look. I had to watch a king play in Toronto. <laughs> you know, you, you never you never want to see the star when they're past their prime. Carol Dawson, the general manager of the Rockets, begged Akeem to retire. He was having really bad back issues, super bad back issues. And they, the doctors were telling him, look, you're done. Like, you, you either need major back surgery or you need to retire. And Akeem opted for rehab, and he opted to sign that sizable contract. I remember it was big for the time with Toronto. And then we had to watch him limp through just a horrible part of the season that he was able to play there. Uh, and you don't want to see that. You don't want to see the superstar. I mean, Michael Jordan with the Washington wizard, were they bullet wizards at that time? The wizards uh, just wasn't Michael. Like you're expecting to see Michael and it, it's not there. And you know, you don't want to see that. Carl Malone, you, you don't want to see him go play for New York and wind up playing 20 games or something. You, no, it's not, it's not good. It tarnishes the memory. Then you just have to forget that part <laughs> where you're like, no, no, he never played there. No. Well, that's how I feel about Jordan in Washington. I, I, that was painful. <laughs> yeah. You know, Jordan, who was an Iron Man, gets hurt at the end of his first season with Washington and then comes back. And I, there was a piece of me that did like seeing Jordan come back, and the only reason I did like it was because we got to give him the proper send-off. We never felt that we got to see for him to get the proper send-off in Chicago. And I'm talking about the NBA All-Star mm-hmm. game and everything of that sorts. But watch, watch him going out as a member of the Washington Wizards was, was tough. And then seeing the aftermath of them not even keeping him on in the role that he was supposed to be in was, yeah. was very, 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 was very, very wrong by the organization. Yep. So I'm with so, you. Uh, Carl Malone playing another year or two. I no, no. I didn't think that was the right thing for him to do at the time. No, and then and then added on to now uh, Kobe Bryant. Obviously, Kobe stayed here. He did request a trade at one point, but the Lakers didn't want to give in. Chicago. In, and they actually, yeah. yeah, they wanted he wanted to go to Chicago. And that actually 
the thought of the idea of him getting traded to Chicago actually tore apart the Bulls season. Because all of a yeah, sudden... Yeah, because that was, that was all happening, and then, oh, and then it wasn't, and oh, boy. Nothing will kill chemistry on a team like letting a bunch of players know you're trying to trade them. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's it, because they're too busy trying to talk to their real estate agent and figure out what kid they're, what school their kids are going to go to. Like, it's a nightmare, you know. Yeah, and that's pretty much what ended up happening, knocking out the Chicago Bulls going into that 2005-2006 season where they ended up making a deal for getting Paul Gasol anyway and ended up making some different trades and it worked out for the Lakers and more moves made to keep Kobe Bryant there happy. Uh, and then, you know, obviously we discussed Phil Jackson not coming back originally, stayed with the Lakers, ended up having his last season with the Lakers in Dallas. Talk to me about Phil Jackson. I, I don't know if you were there for Phil's final playoff series against the Mavericks, but what ended up happening? Oh, yeah. If you don't mind me asking. Well, it was just the media circus. Um, Phil Jackson, I mean, the Lakers everywhere they went, it was a media circus. Phil Jackson was a media circus. I mean, I was at that game, and I remember the crowd around him outside. I mean, you couldn't even uh, – the, the coaches talk outside the locker room just against the wall opposite the entrance. And the crowd around him, people on ladders with boom mics. I mean, it, it was just crazy. Uh, and I just kind of stood off to the side to hear what he was talking about, and I could barely hear because it was such a crowd. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's – that. Uh, I, again, I, I don't see Phil Jackson as one of the great coaches. He's certainly not been a good front office guy at all. I think he had the ability to take superstars and help them coexist. But when he had opportunities to really coach, he didn't want that. Uh, where you look at Greg Popovich, you look at Rick Carlisle, um, the Spurs have gone through rebuilding. You know, Pop Pop could have retired at the same time that that uh, Tim Duncan did. There was, I mean, I think people wanted to see that. They wanted to see that happen together. Let them walk off to the sunset together. And so, you know, I think Phil's last year was very appropriate. Like he's he's done a lot. He won his rings. And the Lakers were not where they wanted to be. So that's – I was not in any way uh, surprised or, or sad. Or I just thought, wow, that's an interesting way to go. So, yeah. If I had to ask you if this Laker team was one of the top five biggest disappointments, do we rank that in there? as far as expectation level? You know, it's a team with Shaq and Kobe. You had Carl Malone. You had Gary Payton. (laughs) Derek Fisher. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think think that Minnesota Timberwolves team is in that discussion too, uh, the way they collapsed. But the expectations around the Lakers, given their roster, was certainly – uh, a lot higher. So, yeah, I think there's an argument to be made. I think I put them in the category of this is what happens when your idea goes sour type of mentality. The idea yeah. of trying to put a super team together and it blows up. 
And at that point in time, like every, I, th- I think eventually every super team does blow up because it's the, uh, like you look at Toronto with Tracy McGrady and Vince Carter. Vince. It, was, it wasn't going to last because you had the alpha male mentality. Shaq and, and Kobe, you know, we, we felt the cracks the year before in their, in their last championship against the Nets. And everybody was wondering whether, whether they were going to be able to uh, coexist. And they ended up sweeping the Nets and everything was great. And then it fell apart. Eventually, the Miami Heat super team fell apart. LeBron didn't want to stick around and be with Wade and Bosch. So it's yep. just this one fell apart fairly quickly, and it imploded in a way that we saw the signs of it burn the preseason with Kobe in his legal case, and it never really recovered. They had a great season, but just falling short in the NBA Finals the way they did you sort of feel you sort of you sort of feel for a guy like Carl Malone because you felt this was going to be his last real chance, and it's a shame because if he would have hung around the next season, he would have been part of that San Antonio team that went to the, to the yeah. finals against Detroit. But <laughs> if you were him, would you have made that move or would you have just bowed out at that point? Because again, you're you're looked at as a lifetime member of the Utah Jazz. Yeah, and, well, that, you're, and you're looking at a guy that was used to playing 80 games a year, too. And that frustration, I mean, hell, I I felt it when I got to the end of my prime plan, and I wasn't a freaking NBA superstar, you know. So uh, it, it's very hard to look mortality in the face. And it's a lot of wear and tear on your body, preparing for games, the travel. It's not just playing in the games. That's a, that's a small part of what – a player goes through it's incredibly taxing and you hear a lot of retired players say man i miss the game i don't miss the travel the you know all the stuff the the other stuff that goes on behind the scenes so i think i'm sure the fact that he chose not to sign another contract when he had player teams interested had to have had a lot to do with the mental just weariness uh, of the fatigue factor that had built up over all those years all right, Bill. Let's let everybody know where they can find us. Where can they find uh, Where can they find you, your and your handiwork? When I joined Twitter, my primary assignment was covering the Rockets, and therefore I am and will always be the Rocket Guy on Twitter. Uh, so you can find me there, and then you can see anything we're doing at Back Sports Page and here at the Hardwood Huddle. I'll, everything will always be tweeted out there. Find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Randy BSP. I think next week we're finally going to do the Robert Ory episode. I think it has to be done. Woo-hoo! We found a way. We, we finally found a way to stick his name into this week's episode too. I had to dig a little bit and I found a way to do it. And uh, <laughs> so he comes up every week, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like I think it's it's almost like Beetlejuice. You say his name three times and he appears. I think that's yep. what pretty much happens with Ori. You just keep mentioning his name. He just keeps showing up. <laughs> so it's like, oh, the Hardwood Huddle is going to be on the air. Oh, well, let's listen for our weekly Robert Ori reference. So, you know, <laughs> he, he, he just keeps showing up. And that's good, though. So I figured next week we'll do we'll, – we'll be tackling the seven-time – and almost treat him like Ric Flair. He's the seven-time world champion, Robert Ori. And we'll discuss – and yeah. I think I'm going to try and – I think maybe we should – no promise that we can get him, but we'll see if we can track him down on Twitter. 
and see if we can get him to listen to the show, maybe even pop on with us for a couple seconds. Bill, you might know That'd somebody who knows yeah. somebody who knows somebody. You might know somebody sure who knows somebody who might know somebody who can get Robert Ord to come on the air with us. Yeah. I'll have to think so, about well, that. Who's... We'll see what happens. I wonder if the Rockets have a – I mean, it's been so long since he played for the Rockets. I wonder if they have a contact number for him or something. Yeah. <laughs> I just picture the NBA one end. Wanted. Guy who can hit shot at buzzer. Who <laughs> would like to play on one of these three teams. So maybe we could get him to come on for the last five seconds of the show and just, you know, <laughs> say hello. Like... <laughs> <laughs> on that – My name is Randy Salyer. That's Bill Ingram. This has been the, the Hardwood Huddle. We'll see you next week.